If you've got a Bible, why don't you grab it and open up to the book of 1 John chapter 5. We, throughout the summer, have been journeying through this ancient epistle or letter written by the Apostle John, one of Jesus' original followers, to an ancient community of Christians in Asia Minor. And uh, we have two more weeks, uh, one more week after this, that we're going to be in the book of 1 John. Jarrell will bring us home next weekend as we finish out the letter. And then in two weeks, on the 9th, as we kind of kick off for the fall, um, I'm super stoked. We're going to start a series going through the Apostles' Creed and kind of digging into the foundational faiths that we have received as followers of Jesus. Christianity isn't a faith that we make up. Or uh, improvise as we go. It's a faith that we have received, uh, ultimately by the ministry of the Spirit through Jesus, but been passed down throughout church history and the generations. And so we'll spend a couple months in the fall uh, plowing through that and really excited to get going on that soon. So um, this morning as we turn to the fifth chapter of 1 John, um, we're going to deal with a couple things specifically in this text, but also kind of use it as an opportunity to examine one of the bigger themes that runs throughout uh, this letter. And that theme has to do um, with the idea of spiritual knowledge which uh, may be a a kind of a new concept for you, but it's something that all the way through this letter, uh, John spends a lot of time uh, dealing with. And so uh, that's what we'll be doing this morning. Um, When people find out that I'm from Corvallis, uh, they often ask me if I attended Oregon State University. And my answer is sometimes. Uh, Even though I was uh, enrolled in the occasional class, uh, I never finished a degree there, but I did uh, from time to time uh, take, take some classes there. And one of the classes uh, that I actually really enjoyed, and one of the few that I feel like I took something away from, was a philosophy class um, on epistemology. So epistemology, if you don't know, is basically the study of knowledge. And it has to do with the question of how do we know what we know, or how can we know Uh, anything at all. So there's kind of fun ways to do epistemology. Basically, if I were to say, prove to me that right now you are not dreaming that you're at church. How can you prove, how do you know for sure that right now this isn't all just a dream? And the classic answer would be what? Pinch yourself. But the problem is that if you're dreaming you pinch yourself, then you dream that it hurts. So it doesn't actually work. Um, So epistemology kind of raises some fun questions like that. How do we know we're not all just characters in some 16-year-old video game uh, in Wisconsin, right? Some gamers in there controlling us all. That's pretty hard to prove. How do we know that we're not? So it's a fun fun discipline. And uh, one of the biggest questions in epistemology has to do with knowledge versus belief. Knowledge versus belief. And so, um, when do we actually know something as opposed to just holding a belief about it? When do we actually know something as opposed to simply believing it? And so, this is one of the questions that, uh, that philosophers have wrestled with throughout the years. And there's basically two philosophical approaches when you're doing epistemology. The first is empiricism, and the second is rationalism. So, empiricism has to, has to do with the idea that all knowledge uh, is gained by experience. 
Other than a few logical truths or principles of mathematics, the only way we can truly know something as opposed to just believe it is through experience. And so we can know things by experimentation and observation, and obviously that would be the foundation of what we call the scientific method. So we are able to experience something, observe it, interact with it, and thereby come to some conclusions that we would call knowledge. So that's the empirical approach. The rational approach says it's not about experience, but it's primarily about reason that we can come to a place of knowledge in different areas uh, without having a firsthand experience of it or being able to observe it in a lab or a test tube or whatever. We can know things through rational thought, through reasoning. So if A equals B and B equals C, then it must uh, be true then that A equals C. I don't need to touch that or see that. I can think that and it would hold up as truth. And so empiricism says it's all about experience. Rationalism says it's all about reasoning. Um, and so for centuries now, philosophers have taken these two paths and variations of them to try to come to an answer about this question of how do we really know something and what's the difference between really knowing it and simply believing it. So one of the most famous uh, empiricists was David Hume, an 18th century uh, Scottish philosopher. And uh, he, in his, uh, his epic work, was The Inquiry Concerning the Principles of Morals. It contains a series of essays uh, that he argues that reason alone is not sufficient for gaining knowledge. And so here's the context. Hume was observing within the culture that he was living within that there were different worldviews, different beliefs, different faiths, different religions, also different political perspectives and things like that. That there were, just like our time, a pluralistic society where a lot of people had a lot of different beliefs from one another. And he was observing that those that held their beliefs too closely or took their beliefs too seriously were oftentimes the ones that would treat people of other beliefs the worst. And so Hume's quest was try to figure out through an, a, an epistemological lens, how could we actually promote a society that's marked by respect, by inclusivity, and by tolerance, so that we are able to live at peace with those who live or believe, believe differently than us. And he argues that the way that we are to pursue that kind of society is by holding our beliefs loosely. He would say, you can believe whatever you want to believe about life, about God, about the world, about whatever, but just don't believe those things too strongly. You have to understand that your beliefs or what you would call knowledge is limited by your own human understanding. And so your experience, again, he's an empiricist, your experience is the thing that is the foundation of your beliefs. And so don't assume that your experience or your capacity for understanding is big enough to handle the whole truth. Now, when it comes to today, uh, I would argue that even those who have never studied epistemology or never heard of David Hume or anything like that, this idea still penetrates our culture pretty deeply, doesn't it? Especially when it comes to conversations about faith, spirituality, and religion. Confidence is not something that's celebrated in our culture. 
For the most part, we're okay as a culture saying, hey, it's cool if you believe that and you believe that and you practice this and you worship there. That's great. But don't start talking about your beliefs as if they're things that you actually know. We're more comfortable with the language of belief than the language of knowledge when it comes to conversations of faith. Believe whatever you want, but just don't believe it too much. And so again, the thinking is that we, if we hold our beliefs loosely, then we're going to be more likely to be respectful and inclusive of those who hold different beliefs. And if we hold our beliefs too strongly, then the worst case scenario is that we become extremists, right? And that we would demonize or even terrorize those who believe differently than we do. And so that is a fairly common cultural thought, I would say. And so even if we were to talk about something uh, like an act of terrorism, and it was done by what we would call an, ex an Islamic extremist, an extremist, what we would most likely say is that the problem isn't that they are Muslim, it's that they're too Muslim. Right? The problem isn't that they have Muslim beliefs, but they took them too seriously. They took them too far. They held them um, too strongly. And so these are valid questions, valid perspectives, and I think it is good for us to be part of this conversation about how do our beliefs lead us to interact with those who believe differently um, than we do. But here's what I would say. And here's what I would argue when it came down to this perspective that Hume puts out. The question is, what if the foundational, uh, the belief that's foundational to my worldview is one that would lead to tolerance and inclusivity and respect in and of itself? So suppose that as a Christian, one of my core beliefs has to do with the doctrine of the Imago Dei that all humans everywhere are born in the image and likeness of God, and therefore they have rights, innate rights as humans to be treated with equality, dignity, and respect. If that's a belief that I hold, how would holding that belief more loosely actually lead me to become a more inclusive and charitable person? See, being skeptical of the doctrine of Imago Dei would actually open me up to not having to treat everybody with love and respect. It would lead me to less tolerant, less charitable behavior. And so compromising that belief in the pursuit of tolerance would actually be a self-defeating endeavor. You get what I'm saying? Or another one, what if as followers of Jesus, we hold to this Christian imperative that we are to love our neighbors as ourselves? If I were to consistently pursue living that out, then what would the result of my life be? That I would consider the needs of others just as important as my own. That I would pursue the good of the others even at a cost to myself. That I would be seeking the well-being of those around me, caring for their needs, defending their rights, whether they believe what I believe or live the way I live or not. And so if I were asked, as Hume would ask me, to hold that belief more loosely, not take it so seriously, then the result is that I would become a less tolerant, less compassionate, less charitable person. 
And therefore, I'd be contributing to the exact problem that human others are trying to address. And so here's the question, or the way I would reframe the whole thing. Rather than promoting skepticism as a means to tolerance, what if we started by asking which beliefs, when held with absolute certainty, would produce the most loving kind of person? Rather than saying which beliefs should we hold loosely, which beliefs if we really held on to, if we clung to deeply and passionately, uncompromisingly, without any doubt or skepticism, would produce the kind of people the world needs most. That's the kind of stuff I want to give my life to. Something that I can go all in on with an insane amount of confidence that would overflow and look like love in a dying world. Welcome to Philosophy 251. In John chapter 5, surprisingly, there's an interesting conversation going on that sounds really similar to this. In verse 2, he says, This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving and carrying out his commands. John uses the language of knowledge. This is how we know. And it's not just here in chapter 5. It's a phrase that occurs uh, almost 20 times throughout John's letter here. And as we're trying to pay attention to the main themes that the Spirit is inspiring in John's reading and our writing of this text, repetition is always key. And so I'll just show you a few of them if you want to flip through your Bible with me. Back in verse, or chapter 2, verse 3. We know that we have come to know him. Chapter 2, verse 5. This is how we know we're in him. Chapter 2, verse 13. You know him who is from the beginning. Skip over to chapter 3, verse 2. But we know when Christ appears, we shall be like him. Verse 10, we know who the children of God are. Down to verse 14, we know that we have passed from death to life. Verse 24, we know that he lives in us. Chapter 4, verse 13, we know that we live in him and he in us. And in the final chapter, verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 15, we know that we have what we've asked of him. Verse 19, we know that we are children of God. Of God. Over and over again, Pastor John is using this language of knowledge when it comes to describing the identity of a Christian. And the truth is, for many of us, I think this is maybe a little bit uncomfortable. Because just like Hume, we're more comfortable with the language of belief rather than language of knowledge when it comes to faith, aren't we? But to me, it's really clear, and especially from 1 John, that the biblical view of faith has everything to do with knowledge. Not simply loosely held beliefs, but deep-rooted, grounded knowledge. And you may have noticed that throughout this letter, as we've been in it the last few months, that John repeats himself 
over and over and over again. There's really only three or four things that he says in this letter, but he says them uh, a few times each. And over and over again, he's giving this imperative of love, this picture of God as love, as light, as life, this command for God's people to live like, uh, like Jesus. So he says this stuff over and over again, and he even at few points himself says, I'm not telling you anything new. He goes, I know you've heard this before. You've heard me say this before. You've read this before. I know uh, that you know this. And what he's trying to do is trying to build the confidence of God's people. That's a word that he also uses repeatedly, four or five times throughout the letter. I'm writing this so that you may be confident and unashamed. I'm writing this so that we may have a confidence before God. He doesn't want his people to be bashful about their faith or timid or insecure about how their worldview would stack up to those around them. He's trying to instill a deep confidence in Christ. And so if you remember the context that he's writing into, there's a group of people called the Gnostics. And many of those that had been followers of Jesus in this community of churches John is leading had left the Christian faith to join this Gnostic community. And the Gnostics, the word Gnostic comes from the idea of knowledge, interesting enough. And so what the Gnostics were saying is that the basic Christian teachings, the gospel of Jesus that's being passed down through the apostles, it's not sufficient knowledge. You aren't enlightened enough. You haven't expanded your mind enough. You haven't uh, opened yourself up to all the other teachings and worldviews and faiths that are out there. And so they are essentially accusing the Christians of having a very narrow-minded approach to life and to God and to faith. And they're saying, if you knew what we knew, if you know all this other stuff, all these other truths out there, then you could be on our level. And so what John's doing is going, you know everything you need to know. And not that we don't continue to learn and explore and dive into God's big world, but he's saying when it comes to the nature of your faith, of your identity, of your salvation, of your life as the people of God, he's saying we know everything we need to know, and it's not in a set of doctrines primarily, it's in a person named Jesus. And that's the connection between faith and knowledge. For John, when he uses the word faith or belief, he's talking about knowing. And when he talks about knowing, he's talking about relationship. He's saying, if you know Christ, if you know Christ, then you have everything you need to live a full an abundant, his word that he uses here multiple times, is an eternal life, not just after we die, but life eternally here and now. And you can be confident that in Christ, the desires of your heart, the longings of your soul, can be completely satisfied. And so here's what's interesting, is that Paul's fear, or John's theory rather, is that the more confidence we have in our knowledge of Christ, 
the more likely we are to be transformed into Christ's image. The more we know Jesus, the more we will become like Jesus, and the more become like Jesus, the more we will become people of unburdened love. Now look there in verse uh, four. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. No, verse three. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. His commands are extensive, As we studied through the Sermon on the Mount, we got this picture of the life that Jesus has called us to. And the truth is, it's not many of us are saying, yeah, check, I'm doing that, right? But he's saying they're not burdensome in the sense that when we are living as those who know Christ, we have this transformed identity and become people who live like Christ. And therefore, out of this new identity, it's not a burden, to love God, to love others, and to love the world the way that he has called us to, it becomes a joy and a delight. And so I would map it out something like this. If I'm trying to follow John's thought through this text, that when we start with a knowledge of Christ, and again, not just ascribing to a set of beliefs or doctrines, although that's important to our faith, central to our faith is knowing the person of Jesus. That would then lead us to a transformed identity. That knowledge makes us something that we haven't been before. And he tells us here in these first few verses, first, it makes us one of God's children. And secondly, it makes us those who are able to overcome the world, that we would become overcomers. And overcome isn't just something we do, it's actually true of who we are because Jesus has overcome the world and we are in him and he is in us. So we don't have to go with the flow of culture and we don't have to be led astray when life throws us a curveball, but we are able to faithfully endure and stand in the storms of life as those who know Jesus and have been given this new identity. And out of this new identity, what's the result? It's this unburdened expression of love. And he says it's expressed in love for God, love for one another, God's people, and love for God's world. Loving our neighbors, loving our enemies. And so I hope you're getting to see how countercultural and how radical this idea is. If we want to become the kind of people that the world needs most, people that are pursuing love and justice and compassion and forgiveness and mercy and equality and seeking the good for all people everywhere, loving those who don't live how we live or believe what we believe, loving people of all races and faiths and orientations and and everything, if we want to become that kind of person, the answer isn't to hold our Christian faith more loosely, it's to dive deeper in. And whenever we see those claiming to be Christians who are failing to love and and instead have a reputation for judgment, for hypocrisy, for hatred, for anger, for violence, the problem isn't that they're being too Christian. The problem is that they're not being Christian at all. Right? And so when we take... This, this Christian faith and simply put it in the category of belief rather than knowledge, that starts to explain all the discrepancies. It starts to explain all the reasons that we believe one thing but live a different way. 
So the invitation is not simply to believe in Jesus, it's to know him. To let his life become your life. To let his identity and his relationship with the Father become yours. To let his mission become your mission. To let his name become your name so that he could live his life through you and through me and through us. And so the question I want to ask, kind of moving from head to heart here, if you will, is what is it that you want to know from God? Another way of asking this question, I've asked it many times as a pastor, either sitting in my office with somebody or leading a group, just to try to feel out where somebody is, I'll ask, if you had one question for God, what would it be? Well, another way of putting it that seems a little bit more weighty is what do you want to know from God? If there's one thing you could know from him, what would it be? And we get all kinds of answers, right? If we think at different levels on first hand, we're like, why did he create mosquitoes, right? (laughs) Or broccoli or all these terrible things in the world. Um, We would have some questions like that. We would also maybe have some biblical or historical or theological questions, right? There's parts of the Old Testament that we have a hard time understanding. God, how, how can I make sense of your character of grace and compassion and love and mercy and also these depictions where it, you seem really angry and violent and that sort of thing? We would have questions like that. Some of us would have questions about different stories in the Bible or maybe different theological doctrines about how atonement works or something like that. Um, Those are all good questions. You know what the most common answer I get as a pastor? What do you want to know from God? If you had one question for God, what would it be? It's different variations on, are we okay? Are we good? We want to know where we stand with him. How he feels about us. We want to know if he thinks we're doing a good job. If we're going to be all right. And I found that for many people, including myself, that kind of question feels much weightier than questions about Old Testament violence or theories of atonement. I want to know, where are we? Are we all right, God? And I want to tell you that this is part of the knowledge, or even central to the knowledge, that John is trying to impart to his readers. Not just theories of atonement and stuff like that. He's trying to impart a confidence in our standing with God, our identity in Christ, our belovedness as the children of God. And I think that his theory is that if we really knew how much God believed, how much God loves us, not just believed that he loves us, but if we really knew that God loves us, it's like almost all of our other problems would be taken care of that we would always be okay even if we weren't. If we really knew 
the love that the Father has for us. Has anybody seen the uh, new Mr. Rogers documentary? Have you seen it? Just a few? Oh, man. Last year, Ricardo led with uh, Black Panther, which is way cooler and manlier, manlier than my reference. Uh, <laughs> I'm more of a Mr. Rogers guy. Um, it's amazing. I think, I don't know if it's still in theaters, but it should be out on video soon. It's called Won't You Be My Neighbor, and one of the best documentaries I've ever seen. Um, I went by myself one night uh, after Jen and the kids went to bed and just sat there crying like an idiot in the old mill theater. <laughs> and um, and uh, here's what's so amazing about it. The storytelling is phenomenal, just the way they kind of give you a, a picture of this guy's life and, and work. Um, but Really, the guy himself is impressive. And as I've been studying and reading through uh, this stuff on 1 John and kind of seeking to catch a vision of what embodied Christian love looks like, this will sound ridiculous. I don't think you can do better than Mr. Rogers. I think when you catch a vision of his story and his heart and his mind and the way he gave himself to the work of really uh, loving generations of children well using the tool of public uh, television. Um, it is a beautiful picture of embodied Christian love. And in fact, the name of the show, Mr. Robert's Neighborhood, Roger's Neighborhood, is inspired by the second half of the great commandment that we would love our neighbor as ourself. He's trying to give children a vision for neighborly love. And uh, there were times where he in a really subversive and kind of mellow Mr. Rogers way, made radical social statements um, in, in ways that would fly under the radar uh, for most of us. So um, loved the vision of who he was and, uh, and one of the guys that finished well, right? No crazy scandal or anything at the end of his life, uh, which is inspiring also. But my favorite scene in the movie is a conversation between Mr. Rogers and Daniel the Tiger. And um, we're told that Daniel Tiger is actually based on Mr. Rogers as a child. And so many of the feelings and thoughts and questions that Daniel Tiger has, Rogers is just drawing from his own childhood. And there's this one scene where something has happened to Daniel Tiger that's caused him to wonder, am I a mistake? Does my life matter? Do I even belong here? So Roger's pulling deep from his own childhood wounds, right? And whatever, in whatever ways he'd been ignored or abused or, or shamed or something like that. And Daniel Tiger goes, sometimes I just feel like my life is a mistake. And what does Mr. Rogers do? He says, let's sing a song together. <laughs> Perfect response. And so Daniel Tiger starts singing a song that basically is just those same words. I feel like I don't belong. I feel like I'm a mistake. I feel like my life doesn't matter. And instead of stopping him from singing that song or correcting him, Mr. Rogers starts singing another song. And so you have these two melodies that are kind of weaving in and out, creating one song. But Mr. Rogers' song says, you are special just the way you are. You are loved and accepted no matter what you do. Your life matters. Your life is valuable. And so as Daniel sings this song of doubt and shame, 
Mr. Rogers sings this song of love and affection and affirmation. They go behind the scenes after their little duet, and Mr. Rogers says, the only thing you can do when somebody is hearing those voices is invite them to sing a duet. Because that voice is never going to go away. But what you want to do is introduce a better song. Another story. And the nature of existence is always going to be countering melodies that are fighting for our attention. One causing us to doubt who we are and the other one speaking love and affirmation and acceptance. And there's Pastor Pete crying in the movie theater all by himself, right? This is what John's doing. And this is what the Spirit of God is doing. We have these voices. And for the, these, these Christians back then, it was these Gnostic temptations to doubt their beliefs. But for us, those voices do come from the outside, but they mostly come from the inside. that we doubt whether we really know Jesus and that we really, whether we really are loved and accepted just as we are. We doubt whether God is actually just thrilled at the presence of our company. And maybe he doesn't really want anything from us. And maybe he's not so bummed with the places in our lives that we haven't grown up yet. Maybe he's just like a good dad that almost kind of likes the messy parts of our life. We have all kinds of voices of doubt and shame and guilt and unworthiness and phoniness. And I wish I could tell you they'll go away. But I think Mr. Rogers is right. What we need is a better song, a more beautiful melody, a melody of truth and affirmation and loving acceptance. And that's what we have in the gospel of Jesus. He testifies that the spirit, the water, and the blood all stand as witnesses. That God has done everything he could to show us how greatly loved we are. By coming in the person of Jesus, living among us, dying on our behalf, rising from the dead, conquering all of our greatest enemies in sin and death and hell and Satan, rising again and inviting us through baptism to be joined into one person with him. And so as I said before, I think our greatest problem, mine for sure, is that we don't really know how much God loves us. Even if we believe it, we struggle to know it. John's saying, if you really knew, your life would be transformed and we would become the kind of people that the world needs most. Throughout this passage and throughout the whole book, John centers this whole process on the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. This is part of the Holy Spirit's ministry to us. It's taking the knowledge of Christ and driving it deep into our being. And we believe that's actually 
part of what we do here on Sundays. Why we gather for worship in teaching and fellowship is to create space for the Holy Spirit to drive the truth and the knowledge of Jesus deeper into us. And it's also why we come to the table. If we want to know, am I really loved and accepted by God? Well, what more could he have done than to lay down his life and to receive us into his own? So church, you're loved. You are deeply loved, accepted just as you are. I want you to know that. Will you stand and pray with me? Father, we are so grateful that you have revealed yourself to us in Jesus. And that when we look at your son, we see you in your love. The love of a father. The love we could never earn uh, by good works, but a love that's been freely given to us by grace. And most of us believe that at some level, but we struggle to really know it. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would uh, drive these truths into our hearts, that you would open our eyes to the glory that is Jesus. And that as those who you have <coughs> proclaimed to be loved and accepted, that we would listen to that voice rather than any that would say otherwise. And we pray that in this process of our formation by your Spirit, we would enter into this eternal, everlasting, abundant life here and now. That we would be the happiest people on the planet. And we would love you and love our neighbors as we love ourselves for the glory of your name.